Uh, we're starting a, a new series. It's a series that um, I've never preached before, but it's one uh, that as soon as I became a pastor, I've wanted to preach this series. Um, because when I transitioned, I transitioned to the pastorate from a position of being a youth and music minister. And um, as a music minister, uh, there's a lot of things that goes along with that. And, um, but I, I just happened to come into music ministry at, right in the middle of the second uh, current or a, a second most recent uh, transition in church music. Um, now, I want you to know that church music, uh, the course and the life of the church, for over 2,000 years, has underwent some drastic changes. Um, the change that we do today um, is different than what we did, you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, which was different than we did 20, 30 years before that, which was different than we had done about 50 or 60 years before that, which was different than they did in the 1800s, which was different than they did in the 1500s, which was different than they did. And we're going to talk a little bit about that today. Um, but, but the thing of it is, what we need to understand is that over the last 2,000 years, the church as a whole has underwent some drastic changes. And not just when it comes to music. The church as a whole has underwent drastic changes. I mean, you can go and, and look in, in the book of Acts and find one of Paul's sermons, and it's around midnight, and he's still preaching, okay? Now, some of you may like that. Most of you would not, okay? I, I understand. And so the, the way church services went when, when the church was first founded till today, it's been drastic. It's drastically different than what it was uh, 2,000 years ago. But what we need to understand is that music, church music, particularly singing, has always had a vital role both in God's Word and in God's church, and so what we're going to do during the course of this series is we're going we're gonna to begin to look at um, some of the older songs, some of the hymns um, that are chock full of, of theology and truth and, and to get to some of those vital um, beliefs that we find written in our hymn book that we often don't sing as often I anymore. Now, what, the reason why I want to do this is because... Singing and praising of God for his marvelous and wonderful works has always been a priority in, in the church and, and many great songs that, that have been written in order to adequately praise him um, are found in our hymnal, not just in our current hymnals that are in front of you, but in hymnals that are even older than that. Um, but what we have done is that some of these songs that, that are so full of theology and of truth have been pushed out by the church. And, and, and now listen, I want you to understand, if you're a young person here that loves the new stuff, I'm a young person too, so I can still say this. I like the new stuff. There, there's nothing wrong with singing new songs. As a matter of fact, Scripture says sing a new song to the Lord. There's nothing wrong with singing new songs. However, it shouldn't be at the expense of pushing out songs that are needed in our lives. Because here's a drastic difference. This isn't in my notes, so this is a freebie. Songs that are in the hymn book, songs that are in the hymnals of years past, were written on theological basis and foundational 
truth. New songs are written more from a passionate, emotional feeling, which isn't bad because we need to worship God that way. However, Scripture tells us, Jesus said that God is spirit, and those that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And so to, to leave out either aspect of that would be falling short of what God desires for our lives. And I want you to know, as a 39-year-old, that's how old I am, if y'all didn't know, a large portion, a large portion of my theology, the things that I know about Scripture, about God, about what He's done, what He's doing, and what He's going to do, have come from the hymns that I listened to every Sunday when I was a kid. And, and, and I don't want us to miss these truths because they're great for the church. They're great for the church to be able to do it. Now, now there's a, a modern um, musician named Chris Tomlin who a few years back, uh, he took the old hymns and he rewrote the music to them, not, not the words, and he put the same theological truths in more modern music styles, and it's great. And I hope young people get into that. And I'm not against singing passionate songs to God. We should. But at the same time, we need to focus, make sure that we don't push out theology and truth. Because God is spirit, and those who worship him, according to Jesus must do so, John chapter 4, verse 24, must do so in spirit and in truth. And so that's the point of this whole series. Now today, we're not going to break down any of the old hymns today. What we're going to do is I simply want to share with you um, three points about church music uh, that has happened, the history of music, and then uh, the need for good theology in music, and why music is even necessary in our church. That's the main thing that I'm going to focus on today, but I just wanted you to know where I was coming from and why I wanted to, and I felt like God impressing upon my heart to preach this message, because I fear, and this is not a slant towards our young people, but I fear we are raising a generation of youth and young adults who are passionate about God, but don't have any foundational truth that it's built on. Now, I want you to think about that for a minute. And you can write this down. This is a Dwayne Davis original. I used to tell this to my youth group when I was a youth pastor. Passion without doctrine is useful of Satan. You see, because Satan can easily prick our emotions and maneuver our feelings, but our feelings and our emotions should never supersede the Word of God. The Word of God is our foundational truth. And I fear that we're raising a generation when it comes to music that's passionate about God. I don't doubt their passion. They're passionate about worship. I don't doubt that. But the theology in which they worship sometimes isn't in truth. And that's dangerous for the history of the church. And so that's the main reason why I want to do this introduction today. So if you have your Bibles open in Ephesians chapter 5, I'm going to ask if you would stand with me for the reading of God's Word, kind of tell you why this kind of verse kind of lines out why we're doing what we're doing. 
But starting in verse 15 of Ephesians chapter 5, the Word of God says this, See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Okay, so Paul's telling this church in Ephesus that the days are evil. Now, that's a common theme throughout the New Testament. We're told that the days are going to progressively be evil. There's never going to be a, a, a day that's not evil until Jesus comes back and establishes a reign of righteousness on this earth. And until that happens, the days are evil. So Paul's telling that to the church, and then he tells them some things they need to do because of that. Because the days of evil, and then here's what he says, Therefore, because the days of e are evil, therefore do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is, and do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. Let's pray. God, today I pray that you bless the reading of your word, and now as we examine it this morning, I pray that I would decrease and that your spirit living in me would increase and that the words would be shared would be yours and not mine. And Father, they will find the place you have for them in the hearts and lives of your people. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So when Paul tells this church in Ephesus that they need to redeem the time because the days are evil, he tells them some things they don't need to get involved with. He says, don't be drunk with wine. Instead, be filled by the Spirit. And then, the very next verse, he pretty much he says, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Now, why in the world would Paul tell the church in Ephesus that because the days are evil, you need to spend time with other believers singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord? Why do you need to do that? Because music, it lifts the spirit in your life. Music is the pathway to many of our emotions, to our hearts, to our minds, to our intellect. Music has always been a vital role, not just in the life of the church, but throughout history in, in cultures that don't know the Bible from anything. You just go around the world, you find cultures never heard of the Bible, you'll find them chanting and singing because music helps fill the void in their life for that need that they have. And so Paul's telling them, don't neglect meeting together to sing to one another, with one another, psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And so this is a vital thing that the church needed to do in, in, in the time Paul wrote this, the church in Ephesus. It's something that's vital and needed in our churches today. But in order to do that, we need to do it properly. And in order to do it properly, we have to do it the way Jesus said, and that's to worship God, not just with our feelings and our spirit, but with truth as our foundation. And so that's what we're going to do throughout this series. So there are three things this morning as we start this series I want us to see. Uh, help wrap all of this introduction up so we can jump right in uh, next week with some of the hymns. But uh, the first one is, I want you to see a history of church music. Again, I said at the beginning of the message that music today in the church is nothing like it was in the day that Paul wrote this letter to uh, the, the church in Ephesus, okay? The church itself didn't even look like it did today like it did back then. Everything about it has changed. The idea of having pews and a pulpit 
and one speaker, that, that's not what you really find. You find it close to that, but not necessarily. Their, their early, the early church's worship style very much mimicked a lot of the same Jewish worship style that you would find in a synagogue. That's why, you know, the church, our church, and every church I've ever been in, really resembles not the temple in Jerusalem. It, it really looks similar to a synagogue would look, and I don't have time to go into all that. You can just type in and Google and look up a synagogue, and you'll find they had an altar. We have an altar. They had a stage. We have a stage. They had musicians. We have musicians. They had a primary speaker. We have a primary speaker. It, very much of what we do looks very much. Why? Because Christianity found its roots in Judaism, and therefore a lot of the worship styles and techniques came right in, into the church. So it's changed, but it's really changed in relation to music. Paul would have no idea if he walked into a church and found a, 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 a guitar and drums. Not that those are bad. But, but make no mistake, he, he wouldn't know what it's like to walk in and find a piano and an organ, okay? He would know more what it looked like to walk in and maybe find a flute or a harp. And that's about it, okay? And in order to really understand that, you have to understand music as a whole has changed over the cultures, over the centuries. And so the music styles they had and the music styles we have aren't necessarily the same. But what didn't change throughout the centuries was the truth that they were singing. The styles changed. But the truth didn't, okay? And, and, and matter of fact, I, I want to show you some of the marked differences that have evolved over the centuries. Now, I could spend all day on this. You can go get a, a matter of fact, in, in college, Jenna, did you have to take two classes of music history? I had to have one, okay? And that's a whole class, and the textbook was like this thick, and she had to have two of those, okay? So you could, I could spend weeks and months and months and months on the evolution of music, and um, but I just want to give you kind of a foundation of some changes. The, the really, we don't have a lot of record of the early church in their music style, except for this verse right here. And, and, and sort of understand it, you kind of have to understand what psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs would have meant to them. And, and what it would have meant to them was very similar to the Judaism, and that was they'd go to a synagogue and they would uh, re recite um, the psalms, actual psalms. There would be a music leader who had people and instruments that would do this type of stuff. And so that's kind of what they would have. But the first real change that we find that is actually written about and we know about was called the chant. The first style of worship music in the church that we know of for sure is what is known as the chant. Now, that doesn't mean they were sitting around chanting, okay? That's not what it means. The style of a chant was, was more or less uh, either as a unit or as a whole reciting um, a saying or reciting something from the book of Psalms. Uh, as a matter of fact, there's uh, extra church literature that talks about uh, one of the uh, Roman uh, leaders in a certain area had written to another one and said, how can I persecute the Christians because every morning they get up at, at, at daybreak and they chant this saying about Jesus who raised from the dead and is going to descend from heaven back to receive them again. And that was the chant. Now, chant was, was either as a group or there would be one or two that would sing a song of psalms and then the church, the congregation, would recite some kind of responsive reading in response to that. Now, 
there were four or five different types of chant that evolved over the course of about 500 years. So I don't have time to go into that. You just need to know that chant was the first style of worship music. The second one was choir. It moved away from chant to a choir, and that is where uh, they would take musicians that were good at what they did, singers particularly. Um, they would be trained. They would be housed. They were paid by the church to be in the choir. They were very well-trained musicians, and all of the worship music in the church was performed by the choir. Congregational worship in that manner ceased. So there was no more congregational singing. Every of uh, The music was led by the choir. It was a choir genre of that. After the choir became orchestra and choir. And both of those, choir and then choir and orchestra, is where we get the evolution of the mass in Catholicism. Matter of fact, there's some beautiful... When I say mass, it's not just a church service. There's, a mass has to have five parts. And when we were in college singing in the crowd, we would sing famous mass music. And, and they were, it, was, it was a whole sermon in and of itself that covered five parts about Jesus, but it's all in music. And the choir and the orchestra would literally preach the gospel through the mass that they were singing. Okay, so you had choir, then you had orchestra and choir, and then there was the Reformation. Now, the Reformation that we talk about, the Protestant Reformation, was the movement away from the Catholic Church and their tradition into a more biblically sound faith, a more biblically sound theology that Jesus is the only way. There is no other mediator between God and man, just Jesus Christ, the, the foundation of personal individual faith in Jesus being required for salvation. And, and the main Reformation people was Martin Luther. Martin Luther, you know, he stapled his 97 thesis to the door of the Catholic Church and all that. Well, Reformation didn't just bring a change in the theology of the church. It brought a change in music. And the, the, this was the biggest change right here. It happened in the 15 to 1600s, okay? The biggest change in church music was when the reformers, Martin Luther, John Owen, and some of those, began to write their theology into music, and it became hymns that would be sung. And that's how the message of the Reformation got out. Because people would learn these doctrines through the singing, and then they would go town to town singing hymns of these doctrinal truths and change it because there weren't very many Reformation preachers, but a lot of people could sing. So one preacher, two preachers, they would write their stuff into music, and it become the hymns. And then after the hymn movement, become the chorus movement. Now the hymn movement lasted about three hundred years. The chorus movements happened in our lifetime. That was a movement away from songs that were written in four or five verses and a chorus that repeated and all that. That's the hymns. Choruses were more, um, uh, they were shorter. They, they focused on one particular truth, and they were just repeated, okay? And then after choruses was the contemporary music that we have today, okay? And so what I wanted you to see through all of that, not necessarily as you have to understand all of it, is that there has been drastic changes in music over the century. Now, that's not an exhaustive list, but that pretty much sums up the evolution of music inside the church since the church began. But every one of these 
categories, these genres, have subcategories and sub-emphasis and, and all kinds of things that I just don't have time to go into. But the point that we need to see and grasp is that the church has undergone many changes in relation to music. Some were good, some were not so good, but the church is still here. That's what you need to hear. Because the biggest fights in church today are over music. But the church has survived 2,000 years of changes to their music. And the reason why the church survived over 2,000 years of change in music is because the music style changed, but the message within the music remained the same. The point of music was always to worship God to teach his truths to the hearts and to the minds of mankind. That is why the church is still here, even though the transition to music has been there all the time. But here's my fear, and I said this earlier. That's beginning to change. We're starting to see a, a new group of music songs that are written more from an experience or more from a feeling perspective than they are from a truth perspective. Had a conversation with some young people not long ago about uh, music, uh, today's music, and I didn't have this conversation, someone else did, um, but I was, it was relayed to me. And uh, basically, there's some music out there, and it had some bad words in it. And this particular person that was talking to these kids said, I didn't like this music because the language in it is not good. And their response, one of them's response was, it's 2018. Here's the problem with that idea. It may be 2018, but God's word hasn't changed. That language is still considered sinful and it doesn't matter that we've evolved as a culture. You never evolve past God's foundational truths that he has presented through his word. And so not just in the contemporary secular music that we listen to, but in our church music, that foundational idea, listen, that's a young person saying that. What is to make that person not understand that they shouldn't be that way when it comes to church music? If it's okay for secular music to go ahead and do this stuff because it's 2018, then what's the difference and why can't we just change that and, and make our worship music that way too? See, you've removed the standard. And when you remove the standard by which music is based on whether or not it's good or bad, then it's going to affect every genre of music, whether or not it's country music or rap music or Christian music or southern gospel music, or contemporary music. We have a generation that's being raised that's passionate, but their understanding of biblical truth is not there, and the, 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 what happens with that is you end up with music and worship songs that don't add up to the truth of God's Word. Now, does a worship song that it doesn't add up to the truth of God's word, no matter how loud you sing it or how passionate you are, if it doesn't line up with the word of God, does it glorify and praise God? No. It doesn't glorify and praise God if it's not truth. 
And, and that's the problem. And that's why this series is so important to us. It's not me. I don't take it that, that I'm your pastor and I'm going to stand up here and bash all the new stuff because I'm about to talk about some of the new stuff here in a minute in a good light. Some of it's really good. But it has to be identified and it has to be accepted through the Word of God. If it doesn't line up with the Word of God, then it is not good for the church. And for 2,000 years, the church has went underwent musical style change, but the message stayed the same, and the church is still here, even though there's been lots of fights about it. But if we change the message of our music, the church will not survive. Because we won't be doing what God's called us to do. We will not longer, we will no longer be worshiping Him in spirit and truth. So that leads me to the second thing. And that is the necessity of good theology in music, church music. Now, when I was a music minister, I went to a a conference out in Gloria, New Mexico, and one of my uh, breakout sessions, I went in, I don't remember who said this. I wrote it down, and it's been ingrained in my mind ever since. I'll never forget it. And it is something that I held on to as a worship pastor. It is something that I held on to now as a pastor. But here's the statement that was given to me in this breakout session. It said, this guy said this. He said, uh, you can't have good doxology. Now, doxology, for those of you who don't know what that is, that just is a big word for vocal praise of God. And he said, you can't have good doxology, you can't have good vocal praise to God without good theology. And that's just been ingrained in my mind ever since. You can't have good doxology without good theology. Unless it lines up with God's word, it is not a good praise song. No matter how emotional it makes you, no matter how good it sounds, no matter what your feelings are about it or how it makes your feelings move, if it doesn't line up with the word of God, it is not a good worship song. It has to line up with the word of God. Here's the reason. Our experience, and I think I said this earlier, I'll say it again, our experiences do not supersede God's word. Our feelings do not supersede God's word. Our emotions do not supersede God's words. Our opinions do not supersede God's word. That's not in, just in relation to music. That's in relation to every aspect of our life. Our feelings, our emotions, our our, um, our experiences and our opinions, none of those supersede God's Word. So we need to have good theology, good foundational truth from God's Word in our music. Well, how do we know if a song has good theology? Well, let me give you four things real quick. This will pretty much tell you whether or not it's theologically sound. Number one, is it God-centered or man-centered? When you listen to a song, is the emphasis on God or is the emphasis on you and man? Because worship has never been about you. Worship, particularly with vocal music of praise of God, has always been centered around God, not you. So is the song focused on God or is it focused on you? Number two, is it rooted in the Word of God? Is the truths that you find found in Scripture or are they just someone's experience or feeling? And maybe it is someone's experience or feeling that lines up with the Word of God. That's okay. 
But if it doesn't line up with the Word of God, then no, it's not. Number three, does it turn your heart toward heaven, or does it make your heart want the things of the world? Does it make you focus? Does it turn your focus toward heaven, or does it turn your focus towards you and towards the things of the world? And number four is, has it withstood the test of time? Has it withstood the test of time? Now, this is something we need to know. Truth always withstands the test of time. Always. Now, I'm not against, again, I'm not against the new song. Scripture even talks about singing a new song. But the songs that withstood the test of time should not be cut out. They are timeless. That's why Amazing Grace still stirs the heart of man when it was written in the 1600s. That's why modern songs take Amazing Grace and put it to modern music style because the truths are timeless. And you can do that with any number of foundational hymns that we have. We, we sing one. It's a very modern song, How Great Is Our God that almost always transitions right into how great thou art. And I don't know about you, but when I was a worship pastor and I would do that combination, the music, the, the people's voices always got louder when I got to how great thou art. Now, I want you to know some of the new music may become timeless. Matter of fact, there's some songs out there today that I believe will become timeless. But they shouldn't keep us from seeing the ones that are already timeless because they've withstood the test of time. They have stood there for the centuries as music minister after music minister and pastor after pastor whose heart is to lead the church towards truth and righteousness has poured over those songs and has listened to those words over and over again and encourages their congregation to keep singing these words because they are truth. Now, there are some songs that I would never lead as a worship pastor. I may have someone come in and go, why don't you do that song? And I go, I'm not doing that song because it is not scripturally sound and I'm not going to do it. I'll give you one. Y'all may have heard it. Michael W. Smith, years ago, above all, above all powers, above all kingdoms. Now, I want you to know when you hear that song, it'll stir your heart and stir your emotions, but there's a problem because it puts man at the top of God's list of what's on his mind. And man ain't on the top of the list of what's on God's mind. God's glory is what's on top of God's mind. God will not share his glory with another. So you could sit there and say, above all powers, above all kingdoms, above all wisdom, above all you, no, above all him. That's a, people like that song. There may be people in here that they, it may be one of your good songs, but I would never lead worship with that song because it wasn't right to me, and I didn't feel that it was accurate to do so. And, and, and the reason why is because it, it, it just didn't per, perceive truth. And here's the thing. As a music minister, I was around a bunch of other music ministers, and I didn't know of any of them that would lead their church to sing that song. This older hymns have been there through the people who are responsible for what they give you. Do you not understand that a pastor is responsible for you? 
Why in the world would a pastor allow songs to be sang and you to be singing them if he knew they weren't right and weren't good for you? And the songs that are three, four, five, six hundred years old that are still standing, they're still standing because they've withstood the test of time. They're timeless because they're true. They're true. And some of our new stuff, we're going to get there because it's true. But we shouldn't push out what we know is true. Now, that leads me to the, the third thing. And then we'll be done this morning. And that is, why is this even necessary? Why do we need to spend time? Well, obviously, if you can't understand it just through the idea that that last point, that theology is needed, why do we need music anyway? Why would Paul tell the church in Ephesus that in the process of redeeming the time, because the days are evil, he says, don't get drunk with wine, but instead be filled with the Spirit. And then he says, singing to one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, rejoicing in your heart to the Lord. Why, why is music even necessary? Why don't we just get together and study the Word of God? By the way, I know some pastors that that's what they believe. Matter of fact, my father-in-law has served under a pastor that way. But it says it's under the foolishness of preaching that they'll be saved. So he could do away with all that and just get right into the Word of God. And I'm sitting there going, you shouldn't do that. There's a reason why Paul says that we ought to do this together. You notice how he says to one another? He's, he's talking about in the context of a, a worship service. There should be music in a worship service. Why? Why is it necessary? Why don't we just cut the music out if that big a problem? We just start opening the Word of God, and that's all we do. Why is music necessary? And, and that's the last thing I, I want us to see. So let me give you some reasons why worship music is necessary in our worship service. Number one is music enables us to praise God for who He is, for what He's done, what He's doing, and what He's going to do. Music allows us to praise God. Praise is something mankind does naturally. Praise. Not necessarily praise God. Praise is something mankind does naturally. We praise when our children do something right. Right? We praise when our favorite team wins a big game. Hallelujah, OSU won yesterday somehow. How in the world they did that? I don't know. But I guarantee you watched that after the game was over, and that, those kids are coming down out of the bleachers, and they're praising. They're praising. They're happy. They're giving praise. Praise is something that we do when we're, we're excited. And, and when, we use, when music comes into the church, it enables us to Focus our praise where it needs to go, on God, who's, as Brother Chuck said this morning, worthy of our praise. Why is he worthy? Because of everything he did, everything he's doing, everything he's going to do in the future. He is worthy. It enables us to praise for God. It enables us to put words to what our hearts and our emotions so often feel that we don't have the words to say in and of ourselves. That's what it enables us to do. Number two, because it shifts our focus away from us and puts our focus on God. This is why as a pastor, 
I pretty much demand that we have music before I preach. Because music, if it's done right, and we are using it to praise God and worship in Him, it turns our heart away from ourselves, away from the things of the world, away from all the distractions, and it puts our focus on God, and that is what puts us in a place to be able to receive the Word of God with joy. Even though sometimes the Word of God is not all that joyful to receive. Sometimes the Word of God is convicting. Sometimes the Word of God is challenging. And if your focus is not on God when you receive it, you're not going to receive it with joy. And so worship and music allows us to shift our focus away from self towards God and allows us to put our focus where it needs to be so that we can adequately receive the Word of God. That's why a good worship leader doesn't have to have all the talent in the world. They don't have to be the best singer in the world. All they have to be able to do is stand up here and worship. Brother Chuck does such a great job with that. I'm just telling you. I had a man at Lone Grove. I, I've been blessed because I moved here, and I, there was a man at Lone Grove that lead music for me when I was a music guy and, and was gone. And he, him and, and Chuck are almost identical in about every sense of the word. He's tall like Chuck, has a mustache like Chuck. Chuck has a little more gray hair, but still, sorry, Chuck. But he would always say, if you, if you need to find someone better, and all I would say, and I think I even shared this with Chuck before when I first moved here, you don't get any better than someone who leads with their heart. They can be gifted, but that doesn't mean they lead with their heart. And I guarantee you, if the person up here leading is not worshiping, y'all don't worship. A worship leader is a lead worshiper. That's what they do. They lead, they worship themselves, and God uses that to lead others to worship God so that they can adequately receive the word of God. Number three, it prepares us, again, I just said this, to receive the word of God. And then number four, it teaches us and reminds us of either forgotten or unknown truths about God. It teaches us or, remi or reminds us Truths that we've either forgotten or didn't know about God. Truths about who He is, about His Son, His Spirit, His work, His majesty, His glory, His honor, His love, grace, mercy, His truth, His leadership, and on and on and on. It teaches us and reminds us solid biblical truths about who God is, what He's done, and what He's going to do. And lastly, it brings essential elements to our Christian lives. It brings essential elements to our lives. Let me give you a few of them, and I will be done. Under the influence of the Holy Spirit, when music is used under the influence of the Holy Spirit, it not only prepares the way for the Lord to speak through His Word, but it is also what God uses to reach deep into our hearts to the men and women in a way that nothing else seems capable of doing. And it brings us things like encouragement. We sing songs like, Because He Lives... I can face tomorrow because he lives. Where's the focus on that? On him. He's the reason I can face tomorrow. 
He's the reason I can face no matter what's coming my way tomorrow. And I don't know, none of us know, by the way, what's coming our way tomorrow. But he's the reason we can face it. We sing songs like, Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. I, I don't have to worry about my salvation. It's assured. That encourages me. Or songs like my favorite one, It is well with my soul. No matter what's coming my way, it is well. Why? Because of the third verse. Because my sin, not in part, but the whole, was nailed to a cross. Right? It, it brings, here's another one, comfort to our lives. We sing songs like, How Firm a Foundation. When, when, when our, everything else around us seems to be faltering and going south, and you stand and sing how firm a foundation, does that not comfort you? And if it doesn't, then you're not listening to the words. Yeah, or, or songs like, in the garden, or count your blessings. Then there's songs that challenge us, like, lead me to some soul today. Or a song that I really had a hard time singing at the first church I was the music minister, and that is, We'll work till Jesus comes. And I actually told the church that one time. They asked me to sing that, and I said, no. And they said, why? I said, because we'd be singing a lie. Because our church, that church, didn't want to work for nothing. They didn't want to do nothing. They didn't want to reach people. They wanted to make sure that they were happy, and they were content, and that was it. And then you want to stand up and sing, we'll work till Jesus comes? What is work if we're just sitting in a pew every Sunday doing nothing? But those songs, when we hear it, it ought to challenge us, right? If we're going to sing it, we ought to do it. Then there are songs like, People Need the Lord, who's a challenge. Or, Tell the Good News. Tell the Good News. Songs that challenge us. And then there are songs that guide us, like, He leadeth me. Or, Wherever He leads, I'll go. Which can be a challenge, too. Or, A guidance. Or songs that most of you, unless you're older, you probably don't even know this one. On eagle's wings. It's in the hymnal. And God will raise you up on eagle's wings. It's a great hymn. And then there's songs, and this is the last one, that bring joy to our lives. We, we sang one of them this morning. Actually, we sang two of them. Victory in Jesus. Heavenly sunlight. Sunshine in my soul today, since Jesus came into my heart. Now, every one of those songs I just gave you, none of them new. They're all old, but they're timeless. And God uses them to bring essential elements to our Christian walk. Why would Paul say, sing to one another? Because he knew what singing would do for the person who did it in spirit and did it in truth.